We come now to the truth test. There has been an emphasis in chapter 3 on the obedience test and an emphasis on the love test from earlier on, and we largely skipped this morning for want of time. It comes back in this chapter. And now the truth test, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. First, there has always been an urgent need for discerning truth from error. That's the point of verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Thus, in the time of Micaiah in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 22, Micaiah stands over against all the other prophets that royalty is listening to. Then there's Elijah in contest with the Baals. He's outnumbered, 450 to 1. But numbers don't actually decide who is telling the truth and who is not. How shall you decide? Majority opinion? Is the vote, the democratic vote, that prevails in any land always a good thing from God's point of view? So even in the Old Testament, two tests were commonly given especially, for example, in the book of Deuteronomy. The two tests by which to adjudicate whether prophets are faithful prophets or not are, number one, if they predict something and that thing comes true, then they are true prophets. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 22. That's a pretty simple one, so long as what they're predicting is in the relatively short term. If they're predicting Jesus is coming back, you're going to have to wait a long time to find out whether or not they're telling the truth. Do you, do you see? But nevertheless, it has a certain kind of functional utility if they're predicting something that's just around the corner. Second, even if what they predict comes true, that's not enough. If the prophet is drawing God's people away to serve other gods, then even if what they're predicting is true, nevertheless they are false prophets. That's the whole argument of Deuteronomy 13, 1 to 5. This is, in fact, a theological test. So just as in Moses' day, there were some gurus in Egypt who could do a lot of the things that Moses did that we see as miraculous, so inevitably there are some people who whether empowered by shrewd forecasting abilities or even by the demonic, have some statistical ability to predict the future and say what's coming down the pike and get it right sometimes, even though what they are doing is nevertheless drawing people away from the gospel of God. In other words, part of discerning whether a prophecy is true or not emerges out of the matrix of how much antecedent revelation you already know. To put it in blunt and practical terms, the more you know of the Bible and of the gospel of God, the less likely you are to be snookered. It's a theological test. And, of course, this sort of problem was uh, perennial in the early church, too. Christians can be too gullible. Every instance of so-called faith may be, in fact, nothing more than gullibility. 
we are too prone to accept any teaching given under alleged supernatural inspiration. The Lord told me, or the Spirit told me. You watch some people on Christian committees wanting to have their own way. But the Lord told me this is the way it should be. Oh, it's hard to come back on that one, isn't it? Well, the Lord told me just the opposite. I mean, how how does that play out? (laughs) But to identify the supernatural, as Findlay says, with the divine is a perilous mistake. You can have the supernatural that is, in fact, diabolical. Now, that means that although we are commanded to believe the truth, we are equally commanded, as it were, to disbelieve error. We're not commanded to believe everything. We're commanded to believe and to disbelieve. Likewise, in terms of love, we're commanded to love the brothers and sisters. We're commanded not to love the world. We're commanded to love and not to love. In other words, both Christian truth and Christian love are to be discerning. They cannot finally be displaced by mere sentimentality or adjudicated along such lines. Why should this surprise us? Jesus himself warned that there would be false prophets, again in the Sermon on the Mount, or again in the so-called eschatological discourse, Mark 13 in parallels. He says many will come and claim to be Christ or claim to announce the coming of Christ and so on. Don't be snookered by them, he says. When Christ comes, it will be so dramatic and so public and so transparent that there won't be any doubt whatsoever. So Jehovah's Witnesses tell us that Jesus came back in 1914. Millions of people around the world believe that. And, after all, Paul himself warned against false teachers, false prophets in his address to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 and following. Second Peter chapter 2 has a similar warning. In short, Christians can be too gullible. In the right setting, unbelief may, in fact, be a mark of genuine spiritual maturity. So, Here's the the urgent need for discerning tests. Chapter 4, verse 1. Second, the propositional crux in the context of 1 John is in verses 2 and 3. This is how you can recognize the Spirit of God as opposed to false spirits. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh that could equally be rendered, probably better rendered, that Jesus is Christ come in the flesh, is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. Now, I don't have time to review what we looked at last night in terms of the proto-Gnostic heresy that held that the Son of God, the Christ, came upon Jesus, never actually became a man, sort of rested upon him and then abandoned him at the cross to die by himself. As a result, their whole thinking about who Christ was was transmuted, the cross was made irrelevant, the resurrection could be set aside. It all turned on gnosis, on knowledge, special inside track information that only the Gnostics held. Now, in this context, this is a sufficient truth test. Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ? 
But it really is important to say that this is not a universal truth test. After all, elsewhere in the New Testament, other tests are given. 1 Corinthians 12, for example. There, by the Spirit, Christians confess that Jesus is Lord. It was a different error that was being confronted, a different heresy. So that the tests, the truth tests of Scripture, though they may be universally mandated, are sufficient tests only in the context, the historical context, where there is a specific error, where there is a specific denial. So here the test is, Jesus really is the Christ. The Christ really is Jesus. On the other hand, every Jehovah's Witness I've ever met believes that. Every Mormon I've ever met believes that. Muslims believe that. Muslims happily acknowledge that Jesus is the Messiah. They don't quite mean by Messiah what I mean, but nevertheless they happily make that acknowledgement. But nevertheless, the Jehovah's Witness view of Christ errs at another point. That is, their view of Christ as Jesus, Jesus as Christ, nevertheless entails the conclusion that this Christ is not truly God. He's a junior God. He's a subordinate God. He's a created God. But he's not God. He's not God of God, one with the Father, God's own agent in all of creation, God's agent in creation only after he himself has been created. So there, there's another error. There's another denial that's been introduced into the discussion. And therefore, this particular test is not a sufficiently discerning scalpel where that's the particular error. Do do, do you see? So you must never come to these tests and say, here is the one sufficient key for deciding who is and who isn't a Christian, who does and who does not have the gospel. After the great Edinburgh conference on world mission, which eventually formed into the WCC, the World Council of Churches, eventually the WCC took the view that everybody that actually confesses Jesus is Lord, is a true Christian. Now, they had to put in some caveats, but that was basically the test for a long period of time. But at one level or another, though they often meant different things by it, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and flat-out liberals and fundamentalist Christians and broad-sweep evangelicals, average Presbyterians and Baptists and you name it, they all could say Jesus is Lord. So the people in the WCC said, yes, but this is the standard that Scripture has itself given. Go and read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Everyone who says Jesus is Lord is speaking by the Spirit. But what that's refusing to recognize is that there is a specific error that is being confronted by the truth test in that location. Here in First John, there is another error that's being confronted and therefore a different test is advanced. Do, 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 do you see? Which is why it is always important to have more Bible, more mature synthesis, more theology under your belt before you try to decide what, what is coming down the pike, whether it's a good thing or, or a bad thing, whether it's in line with Scripture or really stepping aside or, or, or whatever. And moreover, some movements are remarkably subtle they, um, they are really good on some things and really bad on other things. It would be really nice if every movement that came down the pike was either right from the throne room of God or right from the pit of hell 
so that you could either bless it or damn it and then get on with life. But very often things come along and, and they're complex. They have some good points and they have some dicey points. And it takes a while to suss some of these things out in the light of Scripture. Do you, do, do, do you see? But in this context, it is a Christological point that is absolutely central. Third, John then offers a reminder that the power to see this truth comes from the Spirit of God. Verse 4, you, dear children, are from God and have overcome them, that is the Antichrist, the people who are denying this truth, because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. You see, it's really important to grasp that our ability to discern the truth is not because we have a better IQ or we hold to an expository tradition so we know our Bibles or because we come from the superior denomination that happens to be ours. No, the reminder is given here especially in a doctrinal context to make sure we stay humble. Those who have some insight into the exclusive claims of the gospel and into the person and work of Christ don't have the right to start talking down to other people. Though we must share the truth and proclaim the truth, even with authority, it must never be with arrogance. Because if we have come to understand the truth, it's because of the Spirit of God working in us. That's one of the entailments of a godly understanding of election. At the end of the day, we understand, we know, we have believed, we have grasped the truth because of what God has done in us. That means there is never an excuse for arrogance in Christian witness and proclamation. None. Boldness, no doubt. Courage, certainly even a certain kind of authority, but it's a humble authority. It is never to be confused with, I'm right because I've got intellectual superior apparatus behind me, and you, you poor clod, you should really listen to what I say if you are to understand the truth. Then, in the fourth place... John stresses that adherence to this truth is adherence to the apostolic gospel. This is true for true teachers and for their audience. Now, at first blush, verses 5 and 6 sound horribly out of step with our contemporary world. They, that is the Antichrists, Introduced to us in chapter 2, you will recall. They are from the world. Remember what John means of world. They are from the world and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. And whoever knows God listens to us. But whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. Now you rip that out of context, verse 6, and it really sounds like, hey, you listen to me, you're on the right track. You don't listen to me and you're on the wrong track. The reason we know they're wrong is because they're not listening to us. Or in John's terms, they're not listening to me. If you listen to me, then you know you're right. 
In other words, having warned against arrogance in verse 4 and insisted that any insight we have is from the Spirit of God, it sounds as if he's taking it all away again in verses 5 and 6. What do you make of this? But John is not saying that he's right just because he's John. Consider a parallel passage in Galatians chapter 1. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul says, Though we, that is we apostles, or an angel from heaven, speak another gospel to you, let him be damned. Then he says, what I just said, I'll say it again. Though we, or an angel from heaven, speak some other gospel to you that is not a gospel, let him be eternally condemned. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. In other words, it's not because Paul is an apostle that he claims to be right. Even if an angel should preach a false doctrine, though he's an angel, he's still to be condemned. In other words, the criterion of truth is not, hey, I'm an angel, I've got it right. Still less is it, hey, I'm an apostle, you've got to believe me, I'm an apostle, and when I say jump, you jump and ask how high on the way up, I'm an apostle. They're not standing on their authority in this way. Rather, they're saying, it's the gospel of God that is true. Non-negotiable. Irrefutable. Unbendable. With this gospel, you live or you die. So that if somebody comes along, no matter who it is, including your favorite apostle, and starts taking you away from this gospel... May that person be anathema, like the person Jesus describes, a millstone around his neck, thrown into the sea, because he's destroyed the faith of these little ones. Do, 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 do you see? So that's also what John is saying here. If you rip the verse out of context, it sounds very much like, hey, if you listen to me, you're okay. If you don't listen to me, you're not okay. And the real authority is just me. But what John is claiming is that he really is teaching the non-negotiable gospel of God. And there is a community where this gospel of God is upheld and defended and articulated and proclaimed. Those who belong to that community of faith, this non-negotiable gospel of God, which in this case is tied to a truth test, a specific truth test over against a specific denial then they are on the right track. They're listening to us, the purveyors of this gospel, the first witnesses, which is taking you back to chapter 1, if you recall from last night. What we have seen, what we have heard, what we have borne witness to, what we have testified about, that which was eternal, which we have heard and seen and touched and our own hands have handled concerning the word of life. This life appeared. This life is Jesus. We have borne witness to these things. It's that that saves you. And we are the mediators of this witness. So if you're with us, you have fellowship with God because our fellowship is with God. Do you see? It's part of this larger structure of the non-negotiability of the gospel that is in view, not I'm right because I'm right, and if you don't agree with me, you're wrong, and the authority simply rests in me. Now, that is still an uncomfortable position to hold in the contemporary world. Because in the contemporary world, as we've seen earlier, there is an increasingly prevalent view that if you say that somebody else is wrong in various domains, you're intolerant. Permit me a small excursus. I wrote a book a couple of years ago called The Intolerance of Tolerance. Part of the argument is, of the book is that 
the very meaning of tolerance has changed in Western culture. It used to be that tolerance was something that prompted you or prompted the state to allow opinions or conduct that was judged out of bounds by most people or by the laws of the land. You are permitted to get away with it, even though we think that you're dead wrong. Voltaire was alleged to have said, though there's no proof that he ever said it, I may hate the things you are saying, but I will defend to the death your right to say them. That was tolerance. Every culture has certain levels of tolerance and certain levels of intolerance. So, for example, in our culture, uh, we don't allow pedophilia. We are intolerant of people who practice pedophilia. In fact, we put them in jail. We think what they're doing is not only wrong, but that it's criminal. Every culture has certain boundaries which are judged beyond the pale. But a generally tolerant culture, with the old definition of tolerant, allowed for a pretty wide diversity of extraneous opinions. The whole culture might be heading this direction, but if you want to hold your view and promulgate your view, that's, that, 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 that's fine. We think that you're wrong. We, we, we may even think that you're an idiot. I mean, this is so stupid, it's past belief, but you have the right to, to hold that view. You don't have to go to jail for it. We're not going to persecute you for it. We're not going to torture you for it. We might laugh at you. We may disagree. We may engage in polemic, but, but we tolerate you. In other words, to tolerate someone with the older vision of tolerance presuppose that you disagreed with them, but then let them get away with it. You disagreed with them, but they have as much right to speak as you do. That's the old view of tolerance. That inevitably protects the rights of minorities, for example. But under the new understanding of tolerance, it's not universal, but it's very widespread in the Western world. You are intolerant now if you think somebody else is wrong in certain domains. It's not a question of whether they're allowed to speak or say their piece, but if you say that they're wrong publicly, then you're an intolerant person. Now, I want to argue that that new view of tolerance is intellectually bankrupt and morally corrupt. It's intellectually bankrupt because... Through the back door, it's incoherent. It's just incoherent. A communist says to a capitalist, I tolerate you. What does he mean? Well, in the old view of tolerance, he means, well, I'm a communist and you're a capitalist, but I let you propagate your capitalism if you like, but I still think that you're dead wrong and will argue strongly against it. Under the new view of tolerance... The communist must say, oh, you call yourself a capitalist, but I don't see anything wrong in your view. We are all, we're all entitled to our own opinions. My opinions are communist, your opinions are capitalist, and we're all right in our own way. And flip that around, if you like, and make it a capitalist, a communist. It makes no difference. But, but then tolerance has lost any coherence. You can only speak of toleration if you disagree with somebody in the first place. If you don't say that somebody's wrong in the first place... You don't need to tolerate them. You don't think there's anything to tolerate. Did did you see? It is an intellectually incoherent position. Worse, it's actually corrupt because it leads more and more people to say, because you think that so-and-so is wrong, therefore you're a bigot. 
and you must be condemned. So who's doing the condemning? The person who's claiming that that person is a bigot is also being condemned. The least tolerant people in many strands of Western culture today are those who are pushing the new tolerance. Because if you don't agree with the new tolerance, then you're intolerant. And therefore you're a bigot and should be condemned. This is actually promulgated in UN documents, for example. We tolerate everything except intolerance. So you can't tolerate people who have a different definition of intolerance than the UN. Do you, do, you, do you see? Those people are intolerant, therefore they must be condemned. It's promulgated in documents out of Ottawa. It's promulgated in many of our university uh, 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 student documents and so on. It is not only intellectually bankrupt, it is morally corrupt and hugely manipulative. But that is where our culture is increasingly going. I have a great deal of fun on university campuses doing missions these days where I bring this up and mention a few test cases and ask, you know, is this the kind of tolerance you really, really do want where you have to condemn everybody who disagrees with you and then call that tolerance? No, 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 no. A genuinely tolerant society with the old tolerance allows people with different views to say their piece. So a Muslim gets up and says his piece, and a Christian gets up and says his piece, and an atheist gets up and says his piece. So we tolerate Dawkins, and we tolerate uh, uh, Muslim leaders, so long as they're not actually advocating insurrection, insurrection and throwing bombs or something in the tube of London, then, 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 then we tolerate them, and they tolerate us. But if as soon as you start saying that somebody's wrong, you're judged to be intolerant, then there's a huge pressure on us not ever to say that anybody's wrong. But if you actually come to hold that to be the case, you can't evangelize. Because in all evangelism, necessarily you're saying, I have a better way. In fact, I have the only way. It's Jesus Christ and him crucified. As soon as you make an exclusive claim like that in much of our society, you will, by the standards of the new intolerance, be judged intolerant. Do, do you see? So that you can get cowed into saying really, really unfaithful things. Well, of course, you have your religion and, and I have my religion and we're all going to the same place and provided you're sincere, it, it doesn't really matter. And then this is multiplied again and again and again to say things like all cultures have exactly the same value. Well, God knows we need to get away from the notions of intrinsic Western superiority. But do you really want to say that all cultures have exactly the same value? How about the culture of Nazism compared with the culture of Mother Teresa? Do you really want to say all cultures have exactly the same value? The doctrine of the new tolerance is designed to wipe out discernment. And it makes evangelism and bold proclamation of the gospel, this exclusive gospel, absolutely impossible. Or alternatively, it makes us feel terribly guilty every time we open our mouths. Maybe we are being narrow-minded and bigoted. Do, do you see? Now, the reason I bring this up in such detail is because you must understand that the primary charge against Christians from the pagan world for the first three centuries was precisely this. We've come first circle to Roman paganism. The Romans had lots of religions. 
lots of gods. The Greco-Roman world had thousands of gods, just as the Hindu world has millions of gods. No, nobody could know them all. And all of these gods made various claims, but none of these gods made exclusive claims. And then along came Christianity. Claimed it was for everybody and made an exclusive claim. You can only be saved through Jesus Christ. And that proved that Christians were evil, right-wing, to use our categories, bigoted, narrow-minded, hateful. Haters of mankind, Christians were called. Haters of mankind. For three centuries, the primary charge against them was not the deity of Christ. It was not they believe in resurrection. Oh, those charges come up from time to time. The primary charge, the most malicious charge, the most sweeping and common charge against Christians all the way to the settlement of the Constantinian period at the beginning of the 4th century was Christians are intolerant. And in our time and in our place, we are called to walk the same walk and face the same opposition all over again. Our world is not in the intellectual place where it wants to tolerate people who make exclusive claims. But that is of the essence of the gospel. It's of the essence of the truth claim that is made here by Jesus. And reported by John. And this becomes sharper and sharper as the chapter wears on. So then, more quickly... Verses 7 to 21. I said last night that we start with three tests. A truth test, which affects doctrinal matters about Jesus. A moral test, that is, it affects obedience to Jesus. And a social test, that is, whether or not we love the brothers and sisters. But I also said that by the time you get to the end of the book, these three are actually molded together, so they're one tight package. Now, the tightest part of this package is in chapter 5, which we'll look at tomorrow morning. But now, in chapter 4, verses 7 to 21, you get the test of love and the test of truth beginning to come together. First of all, there is an elaboration on the test of love in verses 7 to 12. Number one, since love is inherent in the divine nature, it follows that love is a mark of every person who is begotten of God. Since love is inherent in the divine nature, it follows that love is a mark of every person who is begotten of God. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. You see, this is merely an elaboration of the point already made in chapter 1, verse 5, that we looked at last night. God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. One of the ways that God manifests himself as light is is that God is not only perfectly true, but perfectly loving. So that if, in fact, we come along and hate our brothers and sisters in Christ, how do we reflect anything of the character of God? Now, of course, this can be difficult. Let's be frank. To live above with those you love, undiluted glory. To live below with those you know, quite another story. Or, I was taught as a boy, boys should love their sisters, but I so good have grown, I love other people's sisters better than my own. (laughs) But for the Christian, do you see? For the Christian, we recognize that love is from God, and it begins to change our hearts so that we look at things a little differently, and we work at looking at things a little bit differently. This is a descriptive fact. In fact, this is love 
we're about to be told it, the love of God is grounded in the gospel of God. We read, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. In other words, there are things that fall out of God's love. First, the manner in which God's love is the source of the Christian's love. It's not just set up as a model. Hey, I love everybody, therefore you act like me. But because God is love, he sent his son as the atoning sacrifice. That's bringing us back exactly to the language of 2-2, the atoning sacrifice, the propitiation for our sins. The demonstration of God's love is precisely the cross work that saves us in the first place. In other words, the gospel itself turns on the love of God. So that if we claim to be saved by this gospel, which is nothing other than the outflow of God's love, how can we be loveless? So the manner in which God's love is the source of the Christian's love. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Then, the manner in which God's love is the example of the Christian's love. Following on from 9 and 10, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So in other words, it's not just that the love of God is the source of the transformation of our lives in the gospel, but that he also has given us an example. How can we claim to love the God who loved us at the cost of his son? How can we claim to love his people and not really love them when we see what it cost him. Love is always costly. It's not easy to love a lot of obstreperous people in the local church or in your youth group or in your family. It's not easy. But then it cost God something to send his son. There was no greater gift he could have given. And he gave that gift. So will we define love merely as the emotional high we get or the sexual stimulation of some erotic image or the like? That's love? Or is love something deeper that entails self-sacrifice and self-denial and seeking the other's good and emotionally being committed to them and, and, and so on? Shall we follow the world's definitions of love in order to escape the clear entailment of, of loving as God loves? He could have paid no greater price. There was none greater to pay. But he gave his unique son. So here's the manner in which God's love is the example of the Christian's love. Moreover, the manner in which God's love through us is the public demonstration of God's presence. The manner in which God's love through us is the public demonstration of God's presence. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now you need to understand what's being said there. It's not saying that God's love is somehow deficient until we come along and love people too. No, no. See how the verse begins. No one has ever seen God. How will your friends come to see God? How will they know what God is like? Well, in part, they'll know by the declaration of the gospel, of course. There's huge emphasis on the proclamation of the gospel. But if they want to know that God is a loving God, 
How will they learn that if Christians are backbiting and miserly and mischievous and wicked with their tongues and spiteful and resentful? The Christians who I know who are most effective in godly personal evangelism are without exception people who transparently love other people. They're just irrepressible. So that unbelievers may say, I don't really like this message message all that much, but I'm sure driven to that person. They begin to see something of the character of God. I'm not talking about a certain style of personality. Some are introverts, some are extroverts. Some have the gift of the gab and some don't. But if it's true to say that God is love, how can Christians be thought of as merely truth-sayers but unloving? So, elsewhere in Scripture, we must be holy because God is holy. Leviticus 11, 1 Peter 1. We must be merciful because God is merciful, Luke 6.36. We must be perfect as he is perfect, Matthew 5.48. Here we must be loving because God is love. In other words, here we find the manner in which God's love through us is the public demonstration of God's presence. No one has seen God. You can't see God directly, not with the eyeball anyway. But you can see something of the demonstration of God's working out in all of its perfection, in the love that Christians show. The unseen God, once revealed exclusively and supremely, and perfectly in the Son, is now revealed to the world in us, if and when we love one another. That's what Jesus himself taught in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So here's the elaboration on love. And now, love and truth explicitly get linked. Verses 13 to 21. John links love and truth. He begins with a brief affirmation of the relationships among love, assurance, and the Spirit. Verse 13. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his Spirit. Now remember two things. John is interested in knowing how we know. He's interested in engendering Christian assurance. We'll come back to that theme in a big way tomorrow. We saw it as early as um, uh, this morning where we uh, read in chapter 2, verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. In other words, this is all about Christian assurance. How do you know that you know God? How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that you're a Christian? It's a question of Christian assurance. Now we're told... There are a lot of different themes that are beginning to come together. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. Now, the spirit, we've already been told in the previous chapter, the spirit is the one who enabled us to see the gospel truth, 
The Spirit is the one who leads us into truth. We've been told that we have this anointing. All genuine Christians have this anointing from the Spirit of God to enable us to see what the gospel is. That, that's how we know. And as a result of this, we'll worry a bit more about assurance tomorrow. And as a result of this, verse 14, we read, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So, he has given us the Spirit to enable us to witness to the truth. Because of this spiritual gift, we have come to see that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. That's the Christology. That's the truth test. We've, we've come to see certain truth. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. In other words, that's the truth test that is enabled by the Spirit of God. And so, as a result of this, we know and rely on the love that God has for us. In other words, the truth test is believing that Jesus has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world, to come into the world as the God-man. But he did this out of love. God so loved the world that he gave his Son. So if by the Spirit we've come to see the truth, we have also come to accept that this is the demonstration of God's love. They're not entirely separate. We know thus and rely on the love that God has for us. Then this bold statement, God is love. Now, the Bible says other things about God. It says God is holy. God is righteous. God is a consuming fire. We saw in chapter 1, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. But here, God is love. What you must never do with the attributes of God is imagine that God sort of turns them on and off. Today I think I'll be holy. Yesterday I was love. Today I'll be holy. Tomorrow I'll be righteous, but I may not be love. No, with the attributes of God, God is never unholy. God is never untruth. He is never unlove. James puts it another way. He is the perfectly good God in all the lights that we experience, like the lights here above me on the ceiling. They cast their shadows when anything is put in front of them. So I put my hand here, and I've got one shadow from the light up there and another shadow from the light over there. And The lights over there are casting a further shadow down, but there are shadows everywhere. Even our day and night turn on the rotation of the earth and eclipses and so on are nothing but shadows and light patterns. That's, that, that, that's all they are. That's the whole physical world. But James says, God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. Though he is the maker of the heavenly lights, in him is no shadow at all. It's a metaphorical way of saying he is light, and in him is no darkness at all. That is, there's no downside with God. God is always good. He's good, good, good. He's good, 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 good. He's never not good. So that even when God 
responds to us as creatures in judgment. It's not because he's turned off his goodness or his love that day. It's out of the perfection of all of his attributes, his righteousness, his love, his truth, his goodness, his unyielding holiness. And within that framework, he is nevertheless a personal being who interacts with us personally, but within the perfection of all of his attributes. You see, sometimes we, we, we wrestle with theodicy, the justification of the ways of God to us. We look at tsunamis and cyclones and evil and a parent who dies of cancer or a daughter who dies of cancer. And we say, where is the love of God? Because we think that the love of God necessarily entails a certain outcome that we want. Or because we have not factored in some of the huge biblical insistences upon sin and its effects and a culture and a race under the curse of God. But when God puts the race under a curse, it's not because he is ungood. It's precisely in function of all of his perfections. All of his perfections are always, always perfect. And within that framework, you must come to grips with the fact that God is love. And the most perfect demonstration of it, the complete demonstration of it, is in the gift of his Son and his agony on the cross on our behalf. So that even on occasion where you don't have easy, formulaic answers to explain why you're suffering as you are, or why your family is suffer, suffering as it does, or why there is this or that evil in the world, or, or whatever. The thing that reinforces the Christian's confidence that God is love, despite all the questions we might have about these other areas, is still the gospel. I may not have deep answers, even formulaic answers. But I still have the cross. He who spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How should he not also with him freely give us all things? God so loved the world. So John looks on it all and he, he's just expounded how the gospel, the cross, the giving of the Son, identifying who Jesus is, his purpose in coming, is, is, is bound up with the demonstration of God's love. And he says, we must love. And then he goes one step deeper and he says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us. That is how it's worked out in all of its dimensions and depth in our lives as Christian men and women so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Let me unpack that just a little. The church cries out again and again for a certain kind of balance. A commitment to the truth in an unyielding fashion and a commitment to be loving, unhesitatingly, instinctively, God's love being made complete among us 
I have no liking for diluted truth. But equally, I have no liking for doctrinal orthodoxy if all love is lacking. There is a practical orthodoxy as well as a doctrinal orthodoxy. And we are responsible to maintain both and to insist on both. Love and truth must never be cast antithetically. That is, more truth, less love, more love, less truth. To try to love without maintaining the truth of the gospel is to sacrifice the gospel and to descend to mere sentimentality. To try to maintain the truth without love is to deny the gospel. That is, you merely get harshness and judgmentalism. I do not know which error does more damage, but I know which one is uglier. About 30 years ago, there was a poem published by Evangeline Patterson. Weep. Weep for those who do the work of the Lord with a high look and a proud heart. Their voice is lifted up in the streets and their cry is heard. The bruised reed they break by their great strength and the smoking flax they trample. Weep not for the quenched, for God will hear their cry and the Lord will come to save them. But weep, weep for the quenchers. For when the day of the Lord is come, and the veils sing, and the hills clap their hands, and the light shines, then their eyes will be opened on a waste place smoldering, the smoke of flax bitter in their nostrils, their feet pierced by broken reed stems, wood, hay, stubble, and no grass springing, and all the birds flown. Weep, weep for those who have made a desert in the name of the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, of the Pitcher of Milk story, wrote, I am sorry to know a brother who, the moment he thinks that a member, especially a deacon, has gone wrong, blows the whole thing to pieces and calls it faithfulness. Now, if you know anything of Spurgeon, you know that he is prepared to exercise church discipline. But his instinctive reactions are a little slower than that. Do, do, do you see? Or John Newton. How much our blessed Savior and his gospel suffer by the hot contentions of those who call themselves saints. So when Christians disagree doctrinally, it's important that we lower our voices and smile and find out why the other side believes as it does and tries to love brothers and sisters in Christ as Christ loved the church. It means we will pray for others. And then out of this perfection of love in us, that's the word that is used, this maturity, this perfection of love, this, this love that we experience becomes a ground, I don't know what else to call it, a ground of eschatological confidence, verses 17 and 18. Confidence on the last day. <clears throat> This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear, because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. You, you see, in other words, you are back at the doctrine of assurance. So, you come to the last day. Either Christ himself returns, or your last day. And using the typical language that we, 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 we say, uh, St. Peter's at the gate saying, why should you come in here? Where's your confidence? If Christ suddenly were to appear, where would your confidence be? 
John dares to speak of a certain kind of eschatological confidence that Christians enjoy, that is, a confidence before God on the last day, grounded, at least in part, grounded, at least in part, on the fact that we have loved the brothers and sisters. Now, I know in an ultimate sense, because John has already said this, that in the last day, in some ways, our answer when St. Peter asks us, why should you come in here? Your answer must be, I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. But if you quote this doctrinal truth, meanwhile, having just barely escaped hating everybody within hating range, how do you stand before God on the last day and say, hey, I have a right in here. I plead Jesus' blood. Because the gospel actually does transform. And where there's no evidence of transformation. And who knows, but it's another spurious conversion. After all, we saw in chapter 2, verse 19, that some people went out from us who had been baptized members of the local church in good standing. They went out from us in order that it might be made clear that they never were of us. It's possible to be duped. No. You have to remember that the Bible does say again and again that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is a kind of fear before God that is right and good. But insofar as fear is a function of punishment, then once you are doing nothing that is worth punishing, once your love is so perfect, that you are not doing anything wrong, ever. Perfect love drives out fear because there's no fear of punishment left. Oh, there's still the fear of trembling before God and his magnificence and awe and his transcendent glory. glory. And we've already seen in chapters 1, 2, and 3 how John himself insists that before the Lord's return, we will not be perfect. We will continue to sin and have to fly to the cross again and again. But insofar as we are loving more and more and more, so also we learn Less fear of punishment. And in the new heaven and the new earth and resurrection existence on the last day, we will never fear punishment again. Perfect love will have forever driven out all fear of punishment. And insofar as our lives are being conformed to that mark that we will one day achieve at the consummation when Christ himself returns, so we also discover we have more assurance before God on the last day. But what assurance will we have if we are disdainful of the truth, if we're not obedient principally to this Christ and we don't love the brothers and sisters? We might have a false assurance, but it's not a well-grounded assurance. But to this matter, we'll come again tomorrow. So in other words, verse 19, God's love is not only before ours, it's prior, but it's causal, it's gospel love. We love because he first loved us and gave his son, as he's already explained. And so now, whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. Whoever does not love their brothers and sisters whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now do you see what he's done? He's brought the obedience factor into the love factor. 
The obedience factor says you've got to obey Christ and his commands. But one of Christ's commands is that you love one another. So now these two tests, the love test and the truth test, have come together in two ways. First, the truth test is who Jesus is. And the demonstration that Jesus is the Son of God, sent by God, as the outflow of God's love, is finally consummated in the atoning sacrifice on the cross. You confess the truth of who Jesus is, and you're confessing God's love for us. So the truth test is tied to the love test. Now we're told that one of the commands that this Jesus has given us is to love. So if we love, we are obeying a command. Now you've got the truth test and the command test and the love test all beginning to come together in one package. Do you, do you see? All centered on the gospel, on who Jesus is. And then they will be more tightly wound together in chapter 5 as we contemplate the full-orbed gospel of God. Let us bow in prayer and as this morning, take a few moments to reflect on the way these three tests, the truth test, the moral test, and the love test, come about in our own lives so that we confess our sins and go back to him who is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness as we petition the throne of God for faithfulness in all of these arenas. Merciful God, we confess how easy it is to think of Christianity in disparate little bits, a chunk of truth here and an ethical challenge there. But we begin to perceive in your most holy word how it all hangs together. In truth, you are light. In you, there is no darkness at all. And the revelation you have given of your Son compels in us the kind of faith that really does witness to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross. And it compels the kind of obedience that really loves to obey him. And it compels in us the kind of love that we would not have shown had we not experienced your love for us in Christ Jesus. Grant, Lord God, that we will grow in maturity in our doctrinal understanding, in maturity on the instantaneity of our obedience, in maturity in the self-denial and deeply committed love for your dear Son and for one another that we would not have apart from his love for us. Make us homesick for heaven, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Grant that we may see all of our acceptance grounded finally in the cross, but that gospel news so powerfully at work within us that we also see something of the transformation that has taken place. We 
We ask these great mercies in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <coughs>